the automated podcast. So welcome back to another episode of Automated. I'm Mark Verbenkoff, and this is the podcast exploring the impact of technology on jobs. So this week, we'll be looking at the automation in the military. And I think that even though automation is having a really massive impact in the commercial and civilian sectors, it has been argued that perhaps there is even a greater impact of these automation technologies in the military. So it's actually been a topic in the back of my mind for a little bit over a year now. Uh, I think I mentioned in one of the earlier episodes that I went to a conference last year on exoskeletons in Berlin, where actually a number of uh, passive exoskeletons were showcased. So these uh, passive exoskeletons are ones that don't have any battery or power in them. They just have um, uh, systems of springs and pulleys that enable the exoskeleton to support the human that's actually using it. So I think that the most impressive presentation was actually of a U.S. military contractor that was exhibiting their full-body passive exoskeleton on an actual soldier. So the soldier got up onto the stage at the end of the presentation and had a, I think, roughly a 40-kilogram backpack on and ran back and forth, back and forth along the length of the entire stage a number of times. He then talked about how easy of a task this was, and it didn't really feel like he was exerting himself very much. So the exoskeleton itself was uh, made to be very flexible and ran down the length of his entire spine into the hips and then down the outside of his legs and into these uh, specially made boots where the weight was actually transferred. So the cost was actually still quite high for such a device at some uh, 50,000 euros or so. But given the fact that most soldiers need to carry uh, extreme amounts of gear in all sorts of environments, the device was argued to be more than beneficial for the price tag. And it also claimed that uh, with further developments and different materials that could be used in it, the price tag could eventually be dropped significantly. Now, this is obviously an example uh, not of a fully automated system, but rather um, one that augments a human to modify or support the required tasks that that human has to do. So one, I think, could make the argument that most, if not all, new technologies brought to the military does this in some fashion or another. But I think the more interesting and perhaps even more scary thing to discuss is the fully autonomous systems that are being put in place nowadays. Now, I think that most of us have come across this idea in one form or another, but perhaps most famously through the uh, various Hollywood films, presenting the danger automated weaponized robots in the future could really pose to us. Perhaps most famously, this has been done with the uh, Terminator movies, of course. So personally, I never gave much credit to these ideas, but I think that after looking further into this uh, for this specific episode, I'm actually much less hopeful for the automated military future than before, but mainly for one technology in particular, but I'll get into that uh, much later in the episode. So no, I don't believe that uh, robots will take over, but there are strong arguments for a problematic future, more so than I originally thought. So we've seen military operations trend towards less direct human involvement, mainly through the use of drone strikes, specifically the Predator drones, which are unmanned but still remote controlled by a human operator. And these have been notoriously used in both Afghanistan and Iraq. So it is estimated that more than 80,000 surveillance drones and almost 2,000 attack drones could be purchased around the world in the next 10 years. 
And in 2019 alone, it is actually expected that the world's 10 biggest drone users uh, will spend some $8 billion on new drones. So this includes uh, USA, China, Russia, all the way to uh, Israel, as well as Turkey. So for these uh, remote operated drones, pilots are on rotation and they control devices that are able to stay in conflict zones for about 16 to 20 hours. And in theory, they're able to hit a target the size of a household pane of glass. And Justin Bronk uh, from the military think tank, the Royal United Services Institute, says that drones are five to six times more efficient than conventional air missions. Hence the reason for their continued and increased use. But as discussed in the episode on autonomous vehicles, uh, DARPA, the research arm of the U.S. military, has been interested in automated systems for quite some time and was actually the one that launched the autonomous vehicle challenge that really acted as the initial uh, launch pad for the entire autonomous vehicle boom that we've been seeing over the last decade or so. So unlike autonomous cars on our streets, there are a number of autonomous military systems that are already in use and a number of them still being developed. So one of the more publicized examples was the Big Dog from Boston Dynamics. This was also funded by DARPA. So Big Dog was an autonomous uh, four-legged robot that could go over difficult terrain and carry up to 150 kilograms though it was eventually cancelled in 2015, as it was deemed to be too noisy for combat. And then again in 2015, a semi-autonomous Russian tank called the T-14 Armata was showcased by the Russian military on the Victory Day Parade. So this marked the very first next-generation tank to be entered into serial production. And this tank had an unmanned turret. Instead of having a traditional three-person crew to drive the tank and man the turret, this new T-14 only required two crew members to operate. So this reduced the weight and the vulnerability of the vehicle as the tank required less space for the extra crewman and leaves the enemy one less spot to land what's called a kill shot. And since the turret is unmanned, the structure is basically autonomous. So as unpredictable land terrain is actually a particularly difficult issue to overcome with uh, hard and soft ground, uh, sand, bog, water, trenches, etc. This makes it far easier to push autonomous systems into the air where there are, of course, much fewer obstacles to consider. So for this reason, the future of air combat is expected to shift towards autonomous systems and the use of so-called autonomous wingmen. So Boeing's autonomous jet fighter, as mentioned in a previous episode on autonomous vehicles, is currently under development. And Boeing actually plans to sell this to customers around the world in 2020. So actually quite a unique aspect of this is that an autonomous vehicle would be able to travel faster and farther than a human pilot's physiology would actually allow. And this actually opens the door to many new different types of missions. And similarly, navigation on water is of course much easier. So the US Navy's AN2 Anaconda gunboat is being developed right now as a completely autonomous watercraft equipped with artificial intelligence capabilities and can stay out in an area for long periods of time without any human intervention. Also, the U.S. Sea Hunter Autonomous Warship is an unarmed 40-meter-long prototype that has already been launched and can cruise the ocean surface without any crew for up to two to three months at a time. 
So with these examples, I think it's pretty easy to see that, as with most other professions, tasks in the military are also susceptible to automation. So there's actually a study done on the U.S. Navy, which used the uh, highly detailed descriptions of the tasks that are done by each of the uh, 1,500 occupations, and it showed the uh, different levels of automation between these occupations. And it actually found that around a quarter of them, about 400, are found to have a high degree of chance of being automated, something like 70%. But then more than half of the occupations in the Navy are actually not likely to be directly affected by the coming of the robots and other automated systems. And I also think that it was interesting to read that almost all of the occupations deemed to have this high risk of being automated are actually in the support services. So typical examples of this are uh, culinary specialists, data transcribers, accountants, etc. But I think that we can also now add pilots and even soldiers themselves uh, to a certain extent. So the study actually concludes that based on their findings, there's a reason to believe that uh, the potential for automation is somewhat lower in the armed forces than it is in the economy as a whole. But I think it is safe to assume that to a certain degree at least, this can be seen to happen in other parts of the military and as well, not just the US military. So though the automation of jobs and tasks, either in full or in part, of the 20 million people across the world that serve in the military is really important, as I mentioned at the start of this episode, I really wanted to spend a bit more time on the ethical issues of an automated military force. So though this is something I try not to dive too deeply into other episodes, I think it is especially important given the specific topic. So the overall push for using autonomous military systems has been described to uh, risk reduction for ground forces. As commanders can understand the uh, threat of engagement with a non-human tool, the risk to actual soldiers can drop dramatically. So this will be especially valuable for conducting combat operations of the future, especially in subterranean combat and operations in the confines of megacities and dense urban environments where uh, small hallways, lack of cover, and lack of navigation options will greatly increase the risk for infantry units along with explosive device clearing. So this will be especially important as the U.S. Army announced it was investing $572 million into training and equipping 26 of its 31 active combat brigades to fight in large-scale subterranean facilities. So linked to this is the particular deployment of remotely autonomous combat drones. So this uses a mixture between AI and drones that is argued to support this form of modern warfare. So as remotely operated drones are susceptible to jamming and hacking, um, there was a case study of a 2011 spoofing attack of a drone over Iraq. Um, drones now will have to shoulder more decision-making in order to avoid these sorts of hacks. So the drones, uh, they'll know their mission objective and they'll also be able to react to new circumstances without any human guidance. They'll also ignore external radio signals and send very few of their own. Beyond this though, through cyber espionage, it is very likely that a successful drone design and production will proliferate into the gray or black market. And I think that in this situation, sifting through the wreckage of a suicide drone attack, it will be very difficult to say who actually sent that weapon. 
So autonomous lethal weapons could make lethal action an easy choice for all sorts of competing interests. And this could put a chill on uh, free speech and popular political action, which is really at the very heart of democracy. So these ideas in particular are taken from a very powerful TED Talk that I will link in the show notes and I highly recommend for everybody to listen to if you're interested in this topic. But unfortunately, this isn't baseless speculation. So in 2017, a worker at Google, uh, Laura Nolan, quit over fears of AI killer drones. So Project Maven in 2017 focused on drastically enhancing U.S. military drone technology, and Google was contracted to support this. So Nolan and others were asked to build a system where AI machines could differentiate potential enemy targets, people, and objects at infinitely faster rates than human military operatives could do themselves. So she actually outlined how external forces ranging from changing weather systems to machines being unable to work out complex human behavior might actually throw killer robots off course with, unfortunately, potentially fatal consequences. So she notes that uh, the other scary thing about these autonomous war systems is that you can only really test them by deploying them in real combat zones. So Nolan said that uh, these killer robots when not guided by human remote control, should be outlawed by the same type of international treaty that bans chemical weapons. So therefore, Nolan and several others are actually pushing for a stop to these killer robot drones, and they actually have a campaign that's trying to accomplish just this. And you can find it at stopkillerrobots.org. But unfortunately, it might already be too late. So there are already examples of suicide drones being developed. I'll link some videos to both of these examples that I'll talk about in the show notes, but I was actually able to find an Israeli suicide drone video showing the drone tracking and moving towards a wooden human target before exploding and absolutely obliterating the target. There's also another example called the US Switchblade, which is marketed for use on board uh, naval ships. So this was actually the very first episode that I had to take several breaks while doing the research for it. The videos that I watched and the articles I read painted quite a bleak picture of the automated military future and especially the massive negative consequences that accompanies it. So I really highly recommend you to go to the show notes where I've listed a number of the articles and videos talked about in this episode specifically. Um, so that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and it helps you to think a little bit about the future of automation within the military. It honestly took quite a bit out of me and definitely made me think a lot about the possible problems associated with automation. But next week we'll look at uh, space exploration, which I really hope is a little bit more positive. So as always, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast uh, or give a comment. And of course, thanks for listening and see you guys next week. The Automated Podcast. <laughs>